We'll be in the third chapter of the book of Nehemiah this morning. Then Eliashib the high priest arose with his brothers the priests and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the tower of the hundred and the tower of Hananel. Next to him the men of Jericho built and next to them Zakur the son of Emery built. Now the sons of Hassaneah they built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, made repairs. Next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshabal, or Meshezabal, Meshezabel, Meshezabel, there you go. He made repairs. <laughs> Can you imagine being his mom and having to call him in from playing, you know, Meshezabel, whatever your name is, get in here. And he made repairs. Next to him, Zadok, the son of Bayana, also made repairs. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Yehoiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, or Besodiah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams, hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Yadon, the Meronathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, they also made repairs for the official seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Verse 8. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhaiah of the goldsmiths, he made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, <coughs> Rephaiah, the son of Hur, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, he made repairs. Verse 10. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haram, <laughs> Haramaf. It looked for a moment like Harumph to me, but he made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashabniah, he made repairs. Malkijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of Furnaces. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, he made repairs, he and his daughters. Hanun and the, val- and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They built it, they hung its doors with its bolts and its bars and a thousand cubits to the wall of the refuse gate, or some of your translations more correctly say, the dung gate. He built it and hung its doors. Let's see, I'm sorry, Malkijah, the son of Rahab, the official of the district of Beth HaKerim, he repaired the dung gate. He built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Verse 15, Shalom, the son of Kol Jose, the uh, official of the district of Mizpah, he repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, and hung its doors with its bolts and bars in the wall of the pool of Shelah, which is the pool of Siloam, at the king's garden, as far as the steps that descend from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, the official of half the district of Bethzer, made repairs as far as a point opposite the tombs of David and as far as the artificial pool and the house of the mighty men. Now, verse 17, I'm going to kind of skip a little bit. Verse 17 down through 25 gives names of different people all throughout the wall, rebuilding, making repairs, doing their thing, uh, taking care of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Verse 26 tells us the temple servants living in Ophel made repairs as far as the front of the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section in front of the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests carried out repairs and in each, each in front of his house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emmer, he carried out repairs in front of his house. After him, Shimeiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, carried out repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalot, repaired another section after him. Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, carried out repairs in front of his own quarters. After him, Melchizedek, one of the goldsmiths, carried out repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants in front of the inspection gate and as far as the upper room of the corner. Between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants carried out repairs. Verse three, chapter 3, the book of Nehemiah. Let's pray. Father, we come to a section of Scripture you know, and I have only recently come to know as one of the more powerful in the Word. And Father, I pray that you take us through the gates this morning. 
that You would take us to a place of understanding how wonderful You are and how wonderful our call by Your Spirit is. And may we see and understand more than gates on walls today. But may we understand in our hearts and our spirits the Word that You have for us. I ask this by Your Holy Spirit and by the name, the precious name of Jesus Christ, Your Son and our Savior. Amen. Psalm 139, verse 5 says, You have enclosed me behind and before. You laid Your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from Your Spirit? Now, if you've walked with Jesus any amount of time, you know that is a precious truth. Where can I go from your spirit? There is nowhere too high or too low or too distant or too far away that His Spirit cannot find you and hem you in, enclose you behind and before. The root word the psalmist uses for that word enclose when he says, you have enclosed me is is an interesting word. It literally means in the Hebrew to secure a valuable object. You've enclosed me behind and before. You have secured your valuable object, Lord, which, which is me. I think that's amazing. Just as Nehemiah, whose name we know means comforter, he went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall around the city that he loved so much, so the Holy Spirit, our comforter, encloses us behind and before, securing us within his wall of stability and strength because he cares so much for you and for me. Now you may have already noticed here in chapter 3 the focus is not so much on the wall itself as it is on the gates surrounding the wall. And we pause to study this entire chapter this morning to see something that is powerful in the Scripture. The gates are highly significant. The gates listed here in Nehemiah chapter 3, they indicate the watchful eye of the Lord on His people as they come and go in and out of the city. Psalm 121 verse 8 tells us, The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. And as we pass through each gate, He guards our comings and our goings. What are you talking about, Rick? We don't live in Jerusalem. How can we pass through these gates? Oh, but we do. And as we walk through each of these gates, He guards our comings and our goings. I'll explain that more in a moment, but did anyone notice how many gates are listed here in chapter 3? If you count them all up, there's 10. There's 10 gates. Bible students, what does the number 10 indicate or remind us of in the Bible? The laws. The laws. The Ten Commandments. That's right. The Ten Commandments of God. So anytime you see something in a number of ten, you might have your mind just go to that place. How how is this similar to or connected to the Ten Commandments? These ten gates in the wall around Jerusalem indicating God's righteousness. His righteous requirements as demanded in the law. Psalm 19 tells us the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. They're sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And listen, in keeping them, in keeping them, there is great reward. Trouble is, we can't keep them. And so on this side, of, or on Jerusalem's side, on, on that side, the Old Testament side of things, there was no great reward because there was truly no keeping of the law. Ten gates throughout the city. You could go in and out of those ten gates. And if you were thinking biblically, thinking Hebraically, every time you went through the gate, you might think, wow, these commandments are tough. These ten gates, like the ten commandments, well, I can pass through, but but I cannot keep them all. I wonder if some of the builders thought that as they were rebuilding, if there was one or two or or three or ten of them working on those gates, going, I don't know if I can get this gate up in time. He's working pretty hard. That, That guy's gate looks pretty good, but my gate, I don't know if I can do this. It's too hard. We can't keep the law. We can't. We cannot measure up. The best of us in here this morning cannot measure up 
to the perfection of the law of God and His righteous requirements. So you might ask, well then how do we get around these laws? We can't. We have to go through them. We have to go through them. We have to go through the city gates. So you're back to saying then that we have to keep these laws somehow? No, I'm not. Because the Bible tells us in Romans 5.21, the law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. This morning, we look at these ten gates and we get a panoramic tour of the gates of the city of peace. You want peace in your life? You want to find out how to get there? How to walk with the Lord in the peace of His righteousness? You go through the gates. And the gates will show us how. We're not going to look at these gates so much in terms of history, or archaeology, or even theology. This is not a treatise on what we must do gate by gate to acquire God's favor, or to earn our spot in eternity. But it is a tour of how followers of Jesus Christ learn to walk in the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, through the gates of peace. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. And so we do so this morning, and we'll start with the first gate. There in verse 1, we see the sheep gate. The gate through which the people brought their animals for sacrifice. That's always where it begins. It always begins at the sheep gate. You might notice or or remember, if you think about this, in John chapter 5, verse 2. Of all these ten gates, the only one listed that tells us specifically that Jesus went through is the sheep gate. And for my money, I bet He went through that gate every time but one. Every time he came into Jerusalem, we know at least the one time there in John chapter 5, he went through the sheep gate. Why would he do that? Because that's where they brought the sheep for sacrifice. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It always begins at the sheep gate. We always begin by coming to Jesus. You might jot this down if you want to follow these gates through. The sheep gate speaks of the Lamb of God. The sheep gate. John 1.29, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's where it begins. At the sheep gate. That's where our restoration begins. Our salvation is, is purchased by the Lord. The work of salvation. It starts there at the sheep gate. Where the Lamb is slain for our sins. And let me remind you, it is not how good we are when we come to the sheep gate, when we pass through the sheep gate. It's about how good He is, how good He has always been. In fact, when the people brought the sheep in through the sheep gate, the priests would inspect the lambs there at that point. They never inspected the person bringing the sheep. They never sat down with the person and said, okay, let's go over your list of sins and see whether or not you're allowed to bring a sheep through this gate. No, they would inspect the lamb. And if the lamb was ready for sacrifice, the person could bring the lamb in and go up to the temple for just that reason. They only inspected the lamb. John 19.6 In fact, the entire last week of Jesus was a week of inspection. As He was challenged, as He was pursued by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law and the scribes, and they really brought it hard to Him. And they could not stump Him. In fact, about midway through that week, they stopped asking him questions because they realized they could not outthink Jesus Christ. He was inspected as the Lamb is inspected. In John 19.6, we're told, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify! Crucify! And Pilate said, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no fault in him. You see, he was inspected and found to be perfect. So Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.18, You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. But there's more to this. Jesus wasn't only the lamb who went through the sheep gate. He actually called himself the sheep gate. He said, I am the door of the sheep. I am the sheep gate. John 10 verse 7. So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the sheep gate. And that's where a walk, a spiritual walk, a walk of salvation begins with Jesus Christ. 
You must go through this gate to get to the Father. There is no other gate you can pass through if you want to get to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus said so clearly. So the sheep gate speaks of both the lamb and speaks of the way for all the sheep that Jesus is the door for the sheep. But once I've gone through the sheep gate, now I come to the next one there in verse 3, the fish gate. And it's perfect. Because you see, once I've gone through the sheep gate... Once the Lamb has been inspected for me, the sacrifice has occurred, I am now in Jesus Christ. Now I start talking about the Lamb. The fish gate speaks of my witness, my testimony. I become a fisher of men. I am there in the fish gate. Like the apostles, Mark 1.16 says as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea. They were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they left their nets and followed him. You go through the sheep gate, then you go through the fish gate. You become a fisher of men. And so often when someone comes to Christ, that's, that's the most exciting evangelical time of their lives. They haven't been in Christ long enough to know it can be difficult. Or to know even that there are challenging questions that they don't have an answer for. They just know they love Jesus. And they're telling friends and family, I gave my life to Jesus last week. I'm a Christian now. I've got to tell you about it. I just, I'm, so, I'm blown away. I never thought it would happen to me. But Jesus saved me. Isn't it great? And then the questions start to come. <laughs> and the challenges. And then we have a tendency of settling in in our spiritual lives and thinking that we have to have knowledge and information to be fishers of men. What did Peter, Andrew, James, and John have but knowledge of casting nets? They didn't know how to be fishers of men. So we talk about Jesus. That's how the early apostles did it. They just told people about what Jesus had done for them. I used to sit in church. All the way for years and years and years, I would sit in church and listen to pastors give sermons on evangelism and I would just sweat drops of guilt. I'm not doing what he's saying I should do. I need to be more of an evangelist. I just forget. And then the next week I'd sit there in church and they'd talk about evangelism again and I'd go, oh, I had a bad week. I haven't said it to anybody. And I would just stress over this. And then, and then I found that they came out with programs and plans and ways to learn how to be an evangelist. Good. I took some of those, worked through them. I had a pastor who literally led me through. How do you go door to door, knocking on doors and evangelizing people? I won't even tell you the name of the program. I don't even remember the name of the program, but you memorize certain verses and you would basically take the conversation and you would work it to the direction of bringing them to Jesus, you know. And it was hard. Have you been through the sheep gate? If you've been through the sheep gate, you can go through the fish gate. Because all you have to do is talk about the lamb who saved you. It is so simple, but we make it so difficult. Well, I don't want to come off as pushy. You know, like I'm trying to sell something to someone. You know, there are all kinds of things that we buy in the world. There's all kinds of sales going on all the time. Products and philosophies and lifestyles of people wanting you to to come the way that they're headed. Wanting to sell you on something. Some of these things are moral, good things. Some are amoral. They're really not good or bad. They just are. And a lot of them are immoral. And we have the precious truth of Jesus Christ. This is what we have to offer the world around us. Jesus saves. It is so simple. It is so powerful. It is so eternal. And Paul says, and I love this verse, 2 Corinthians 2.17, we are not like many peddling the Word of God. That's not what we're about. We don't need plans and strategies and, and training to go through the fish gate. We just tell people about Jesus. We just talk to them about Jesus. Share what Jesus has done. But what if they ask questions? You know, the all-important ones like, did Adam have a belly button? (laughs) What about Cain's wife? Where did Cain's wife come from? Yeah, that's a good one. I don't know if I can be in the sheep gate anymore. (laughs) Or the fish gate. Gang, when that happens... We need to go through the old gate. The old gate, verse 6. Some think it was called the old gate because this gate actually dated back to ancient Salem in the days of that mysterious king and priest of God Most High, Melchizedek. The old gate. Whether or not it was, the old gate speaks of the Word of God. 
The old gate speaks of the worst God. The sheep gate speaks of the lamb. And the fish gate speaks of our witness of the lamb. But the old gate speaks of the ancient word. The ancient word. Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 16. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. In a world always abuzz with the latest and the newest thing, it is the ancient word that grounds us in the truth. Let me put it this way. If it's true, it isn't new. If it's true, it isn't new. People trying to come and bring a new thing and say, oh, I've got this new truth, this, this new idea, this new concept. And, and Paul said in Galatians 1.8, hey, if anyone tries to bring you a gospel other than the one we've already brought you, let him be accursed. And it's new, it isn't true. It is the ancient word. But that doesn't mean irrelevant. It doesn't mean that it doesn't work or that it's an old hat or, you know, okay, the, the, what are the, the code of Hammurabi? Hammurabi's code? That one's dated. Okay? But not the word of God. Not the word of God. The person who has been through the sheep gate saved by the lamb, the fish gate, excited to share their testimony, this person needs a solid grounding in the Word of God so that you can bring answer because there will be questions. Now, if someone ever asks you, did Adam have a belly button, tell them you'll go home and go through the photo album and try and find out for them, but move on to more important things. Jesus Christ and the fact that He saves. And until you, if you don't have answers for somebody... Then you say, I'll get back to you, but I just want to talk about Jesus. And then you go through the old gate. And you search it out. And you get to know the answer. The ancient paths. It's there, by the way, Jeremiah says, note what he says, in the ancient ways, we will find rest for our souls. Have you heard that somewhere before? Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble and in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jeremiah spoke it. Jesus equates it to himself. Well, of course, because he's the Word. He is the Word. And no wonder a given name for Jesus throughout Daniel 7 is Ancient of Days. And Micah 5.2, the prophet said, His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Old is not dusty. Old is not bad. Old is wisdom. Old is time-tested. Old is true. And we can trust the ancient word going through the old gate. Well, once we begin to get a handle on the old ways and the ancient word, which renews like nothing can, we're ready now, verse 13, for the next gate, the valley gate. The valley gate. This is the gate that led out of Jerusalem. It led down into the Valley of Hinnom, or Gai Hinnom. Wait a minute. Didn't, didn't Jesus say that valley was a picture of hell? Wasn't that the Valley of Burning where the refuse and trash was burned? Well, wasn't that the place where, where they offered sacrifice to the God of Molech? The Valley of Tophet? It was also called, meaning drumming, and they would beat those drums as infants were sacrificed in that awful valley. And Jesus said, it's like hell. That's the picture I'm going to use for hell in the Scripture. Well, it makes sense. The valley gate speaks of hardship and trouble. The valley gate speaks of difficulty. And realize, understand, we're talking about the vast panorama now of a follower of Jesus Christ. You begin at the sheep gate. You go through the fish gate. You go through the old gate. And now you come to the valley gate and you realize that though you are in Christ, life is still difficult. In fact, sometimes because you are in Christ, life is harder. More of a struggle. Not what you expected it to be. Well, James said, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's where the long haul of faith and commitment and trust sets in. There at the valley gate. It's here in the valley. It's always in the valley where the Spirit begins a deeper work. Where the Spirit begins a deeper work. Mom, can I just share the good news? Is that all right? Um, my mother-in-law Sharon thought that she might have cancer 
Um, she had breast cancer several years ago. She's been 11 years? 12 years. Um, healed from it wonderfully, no problem, and suddenly there was an issue that came up and she's right back in the valley. Our household was in the valley the last couple of weeks. And she just found out that she is cancer-free. Praise the Lord. But think about what happens in the valley. You're there. Uh, Mom has believed for years and years and years. Most of her life. But you're in the valley. What do you do there? And the emotions are up and down and all around it. But you're in the valley. And the Spirit begins to work deeply in us. It's in the valley that my frailties... My inabilities, my lack of strength, my weaknesses, my flaws, they all get highlighted in the valley. Because that's where I realize I don't have what it takes to get to the other side of this valley. And that is a good thing. How is that a good thing? Hey, you may be in the valley right now. The valley is where we realize we still need a shepherd. We need the Spirit of the Lord walking with us. It's the place where maybe we... ourselves and we begin to listen again because we have nowhere else to go. And the psalmist said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. By the way, something else happens there in the valley. And, And Christians, you know this, you may spend years in the valley. That's the place where so much sanctification happens in our lives. Where the Lord really changes and alters us. Where it's difficult. Not where it's easy. The easy times are fun. Great praise the Lord for those. But it's in the valley that faith becomes strong. It's also the valley gate which leads me to verse 14. The dung gate. It's in the valley that I come to another place. By the way, the dung gate, it was an important gate for the health and the welfare of the city. <laughs> because the dung gate is the gate through which all the filth and refuse and garbage was carried out of Jerusalem to be dumped, to be thrown out. The dung gate, or the refuse gate, gang, it speaks of confession. It speaks of confession. I'm in the valley and that's where my sin is highlighted. Where my frailties, and I begin to go, wow, I still have junk in me. There's still garbage here. I mean, I went through the sheath gate, and Jesus saves me. But I still got issues that the Lord is working out in me. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now you might say, well, the Dungate speaks of confession. Shouldn't that be further up the list? Shouldn't that happen early on? Not necessarily. Because it takes time to realize just how filthy I am. It takes time to understand just how much saving Jesus did for me there at the Sheep Gate. It takes me time and maturity to look back over my life and look at where I am right now and say, Wow, I do need grace. I was ten years old when I gave my life to the Lord. Ten years old, I remember it vividly. But honestly, how much sin could I really have committed by the age of 10? How bad could I really be? Well, bad enough not to be saved, I can tell you that. But really, come on. You get baptized, you give your life to Jesus, you're 10 years old, you're good to go. I walked around with that little gold, now that I am a Christian book that my parents gave me. You know, I read that, I didn't understand a word of it, but I had one. And I thought it was good to go. Now at 45... When I look across the years and I look at my life right now, I thank God for grace. Because I know, I know how lost I would be if not for Jesus Christ. I go through the dungate and I continue to confess. Not because that ongoing confession buys me more salvation. I confess because as Paul said, I want to get the junk out. I want to be sanctified. I want to be holy because in holiness, there is happiness. In holiness, there is freedom. All this stuff. And so we go through the dung gate which speaks of confession. John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, how does that cleansing happen? How do I get that guilt and that sin, that filth I've confessed? How do I then get it out of my life? Verse 15, you come to the fountain gate. 
You come to the fountain gate. Do you see how this works? It's marvelous. The fountain gate speaks now of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Oh, okay, Brick's going to go Pentecostal. Let's uh, just wait till the next point. No, listen to me. This is not the first time the Holy Spirit enters the life of a believer. Of a believer. He does it at the sheep gate. Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Give your life to Christ. You receive the indwelling Spirit of God. So why is the fountain gate now so far down in the list? Because it speaks of, listen to me, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In these ten gates listed in order around Jerusalem, providing this panorama, illuminating for us full circle the work of the Spirit in our lives, there is here at the fountain gate we see something amazing. Something maybe you haven't considered before. I hadn't. Until recently, as Les and I have been praying and talking about this, I'm seeing something I hadn't seen before. Jesus said in John 4.13, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. He's talking to the woman at the well. There in Samaria, you drink this water, you're going to be thirsty again. He says, But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, but not just a well, a spring. A well of water springing up to eternal life. Gang, if we walk with Jesus, not only do we receive a well, we we receive a wellspring, a fountain. A fountain of water, water speaking of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 7.38, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers, rivers of living water. Not a one-time baptism. Listen to me. Not a one-time baptism of the Holy Spirit at some point in your life that makes you, as a believer, a little bit better than the person who hasn't had that. That's not what happens. I'm convinced in reading through the Scripture, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a single dip to sustain you until Jesus comes. It is a fountain. It's a fountain. The fountain gate. It's an ongoing, refilling, outpouring, constant flowing fountain of the Spirit of Christ in our lives. And so for the person who says, well, I was baptized by the Spirit back in 1982. Great, you need to be baptized by the Spirit again, brother or sister. You need to be filled again. To overflowing again. Every time you come back to the Spirit of Christ and say, I need more of your Spirit. Guess what? You have a fountain flowing. The fountain gate. The outpouring of the Spirit is ongoing in the life of a believer. And I'm, by the way, not saying that to discredit or or to discount a moment in your life where you really felt like the Holy Spirit filled you. Wonderful. Praise God. But there's more for you. There's more of His Spirit. He has given us a fountain of living water. So important is that fountain of the Spirit in our lives that the picture redoubles itself as we come to verse 26, the water gate. Not speaking of Richard Nixon. The water gate. While the fountain gate speaks of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the water gate speaks of the cleansing work or the cleansing word of the Spirit. What do you mean? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Why is there a double here? We had the Word before. Okay, the old gate. So that's the Word. And the fountain gate, speaking of the Holy Spirit. So now what the water gate is, does that speak of the Spirit again? Does that speak of the Word again? Yes. Yes. Both. There's a dynamic here, gang, of the washing of water with the Word, of the work of the Spirit, and the washing of the Word of God in our lives. The dynamic we've talked about so often here, it is the Word and the Spirit washing and cleansing us. Dynamically changing us. Look over in Nehemiah chapter 8 for a moment. Just skip over there a couple of pages. Chapter 8 in verse 5. It tells us, chapter 8, verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. Ezra the priest, still there when Nehemiah comes back. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen! Amen! While lifting up their hands, and they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their their faces to the ground. Skip down to verse 8. It says, They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense 
so that they understood the reading. So Ezra stands up and gives the Bible teaching there in Nehemiah chapter 8. Where were they when all this took place? Look back at verse 1. All the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. In front there of the water gate and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. My friends, this is the dynamic that we're talking about. The Word and the Spirit. This is where life in Christ is lived out. You're in the valley. You need the fresh washing. You come to the fountain. You come to the life. You receive more of the Spirit. But you need more not only of the Spirit but of the Word to wash and to cleanse. As you're going through the valley, as you're going through all of these gates... By the way, you're still going through the fish gate. You're still talking. You're still at the old gate. You want to make sure you're receiving the Word of God. You're still at the sheep gate. We stand at the sheep gate. You realize this every Sunday morning, at least every Sunday morning, as we commune together, considering the body and blood of Jesus. And every time you remember the sacrifice of Jesus, you're back there at the sheep gate. So all of this is not only you haven't just passed through and left it behind. You're going through these gates as we walk in our spiritual lives by the Holy Spirit, loving Jesus, following after Him. The Word and the Spirit. This is why, by the way, I have told you if someone says, I've got a prophecy, as from God, but it doesn't align 100% with the Word of God, it is not of the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit is not going to tell you something that contradicts what the Spirit has already told you. He is consistent. We are not, but He is. He is always consistent. My friends, through these seven gates, we get a complete picture of living this life in Jesus Christ. Wait a minute, Rick. I thought you said there were ten gates. Well, there are. We haven't gotten to gates eight, nine, and ten yet. Well, I know, Rick. Are we going to this morning or are you going to save that for next week? I'm not talking about here in our study. We haven't gotten to gates 8, 9, and 10 yet in our lives, literally. Watch this. Verse 28 brings us to the horse gate. We come to the horse gate. The next thing, this gate is the next thing on God's agenda for all of His people. The horse gate speaks of the rapture and the return. We now come to that great and exciting time. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. That is, those who have already passed away will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So, listen to this, we shall always be with the Lord. Great news. From the moment you're caught up, you are with the Lord from then on out. Where Jesus goes, we goes. Got it? We're with Him where He goes, when He goes, we are with the Lord. That means, if I'm not mistaken, that we will join Him on a fantastic horseback ride through the heavens, returning to Jerusalem. Keep your finger in Nehemiah and go to the book of Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, verse 11. John writes, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and his head on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And, verse 14, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. Following Him on white horses. The horse gate reminds us that we will be called up to ride with Jesus in His glorious return to Jerusalem. It is one of the most marvelous truths of our future promise. Almost... Almost unbelievable. In fact, when we studied through Revelation, I shared some of this is almost like a fairy tale. And yet it's not. It's the ancient word gate. It's the old gate. And it is true. And it is true as, as true as anything the Lord has ever told us. It's just, we find it fantastic because it hasn't happened to us yet. But it will. It will. The day is coming when we are going to ride. Um, Rick, I see an army in verse 14. But where are we? How, how, how do you say that we're riding with Him? Well, let me give you a few clues. What is the army wearing? 
It's interesting armor for an army. They're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. If you skip back up to verse 8, you see a picture of the bride of Christ. What is she wearing? It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. So the bride is wearing the same thing as the army. Is that just a coincidence or might the bride be the army? Well, let's go back a little bit further. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 The Apostle Paul says that uh, he, he wrote to the Thessalonian church that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming, listen, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. Paul let slip something there, a marvelous truth, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. With His saints, huh? Yeah. Jude tells us in verse 14 of that little letter, Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, which places us back at probably the earliest prophecy ever given, the seventh generation from Adam, Enoch, prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. Saints? Holy ones? It's the same word in the Greek, hagias. It's the same group of people. It is a word that is never attested or or, or attached to angels. That's angelos. Hagias. The holy ones. The saints of God. It's you. It's me. If in fact we are in Christ Jesus. Go back to the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 5. Zechariah says, Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with Him. And in the Hebrew, that word is kadosh. And it speaks of the people of God. Those who are His saints, the holy ones. Made holy, my friends, by the blood of the Lamb. All those made holy by the blood of the Lamb. Those who were caught up to meet the Lord in the air and who will always be with the Lord. So when Jesus says, okay, I'm going to head back down to Jerusalem, I'm going because I'll always be with the Lord. I'm going to ride with Him because I am one of the Hagios, one of the Kadosh, one of the saints, the holy ones of God. Not holy because I'm holy, but holy because He is holy. And this is just, I love this. I mean, can you get more excited about something? I don't care if you like horseback riding or not, you're going to love this. We are going to ride. Saddle up. We're going through the horse gate. Wait a minute, no we're not. The horse gate speaks of the rapture and the return, but there's another gate. The next gate there in Nehemiah, chapter 3, verse 29, it's the east gate. The east gate speaks of the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. That is the gate, gang, that He will pass through coming into Jerusalem. The Bible tells us in Ezekiel 43, verse 1. Then He led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming, was coming from the way of the east. And His voice was like the sound of many waters. Whose voice is like the sound of many waters? Well, that's Jesus. As John describes Him in Revelation chapter 1. Same voice. Sound of many waters. And the earth shone with His glory. I mean, this is going to be magnificent. You think you've seen beautiful sunrises before. You ain't seen nothing yet. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by way of the gate facing toward the east. That is, the east gate. Zechariah 4.14 says, In that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And if you stand on the Mount of Olives, you see it. The east gate. It's one of my favorite places to be in all of Israel. Stand on the Mount of Olives, look across the valley, and see that east gate on the wall. And it's exciting, because I know that gate's going to be blown open. Well, actually not that gate. There's another gate. The east gate is actually below it. That's kind of a facade that Suleiman put up when he came in and, and conquered Jerusalem, that Muslim leader. But the true east gate has been archaeologically found. It is underneath, it is underground, right in that same place on the old wall. In front of it, there's a Muslim cemetery. Because if we defile it, then their Messiah can't come. You don't know my Messiah. He has no problem. He has no problem taking care of things defiled. He took care of me. He washed me. And he is going to go through that gate. Well, how's he going to go through the gate if it's underground? Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king may come in. Psalm 24 7. The Bible talks about wild geographical changes that will take place. Earthquakes there in Jerusalem. And personally, I think what's going to happen is it's going to be raised up. (laughs) 
or the earth will open up before it, but Jesus will go through that gate. He said in Matthew 24, 27, as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. The east gate was the first gate open every morning. First gate open to see that rising sun, which came up there, you know, in the east. It's the gate that led directly then into then the golden gate. It's not the same as the golden gate. But it led into the golden gate of the temple. The golden gate actually wasn't on the wall of Jerusalem. The east gate was. You go through the east gate, through the golden gate, and now you are in the courts of the temple. It is also the gate, I believe, and I can't prove it from Scripture, but I'm pretty sure because of where Jesus rode. He came over the Mount of Olives on the back of the donkey, the donkey's colt, down and across the Kidron Valley and up into Jerusalem. Most likely, he went right through that east gate the one time. Rest of the time, I think he came through the sheep gate. We know he did at least once in John 5. But once, Mashiach Nagid rode through the east gate. Mashiach Nagid, it's the Hebrew word for Messiah the Prince. As Daniel prophesied, Messiah the Prince will come. And so, corresponding, by the way, precisely with that prophecy, and we talked about this on Wednesday night, precisely, Jesus, on the day He needed to, exactly, rode that donkey's colt through the east gate and into the city. Messiah Nagid, Mashiach Nagid. He will come riding through that gate again, not as Mashiach Nagid, but as Mashiach Hamalek, Messiah the King when He returns in His glorious appearing. And we're going to be on our horses there going, This is great. This is great. Wait, go in. I read about this. We talked about this. And what will Messiah the King come to do? Will we come to the very last gate here? Gate number 10. It's called in many Bibles, the, the gate Mithkad. It is in your Bible, probably if you're reading the New American Standard, it's defined for you there. It's the inspection gate. The inspection gate. Mifkad in the Hebrew means an appointment for inspection. It is time for the Mifkad, an appointment. After the rapture of the church, after this, this glorious appearing of Jesus Christ, after He comes riding through the east gate, there will then be time for the inspection gate. I told you this was a panorama. From the moment you give your life to Jesus to the moment of final Judgment. The inspection gate speaks of judgment. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 tells us, I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. You see, the, the dead... All those who say no to Jesus, all those who reject the grace that He freely offers, the dead will be judged on how good or bad they were. I've told you before, you have that option. You can be judged on your deeds if you'd like to be. I would encourage you not to be. But books will be open. Books will be open. Deeds will be fairly weighed. And everyone outside of Jesus Christ will be found wanting. But not you. Not if you're in Jesus. Because your judgment took place 2,000 years ago on the wooden cross of Calvary. That's where judgment, that's where the inspection happened. If indeed, as Paul writes, Colossians 3.3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And you will be revealed. And Paul says in Romans 8, the world is, is waiting right now. It's groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed as those coming with Him on clouds of glory. It tells us the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Revelation 20.13 The death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. The first death is physical death. Which, whether or not you're in Christ, you may go through. We know of great saints, believers in Jesus who have gone on before. That's the first death. So everybody has the chance of going through the first death, unless, of course, you're rapture and you get to skip on by that, which I'm looking forward to. But the second death is the spiritual death, and that's when it is over. It's the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's judgment day, the inspection gate. And someone might complain, that's not fair. Actually, it's completely fair because you will have opportunity to make your case. If you don't want Jesus, you can make your case to the Lord. It's completely fair. But gang, don't you see that's why we need the Lamb? We need the Lamb. Isn't it interesting, back in Nehemiah chapter 3, the last verse says, between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants carried out repairs. So we've come all the way around the wall, through every gate, we're back where we began, at the sheep gate. Why? Because it always begins and it will end with Jesus Christ. It starts with Him, it ends with Him. What a word. This panorama, I don't know where you are. I don't know which gate you're at. Some may be standing just the other side of the sheep gate going, should we go through? Should we go through? And I say, yes, come on. (laughs) Come on through the gate. Because everything that we've talked about this morning is laid open. Everything. Some of you are in the valley. Struggling in that place of hardship and struggle. Some of you might say, man, my life has just been hellish lately. Well, you are not alone in the valley. Remember, that gate is right on the wall. The wall. The wall that the Holy Spirit would encompass you with. The wall that He puts up to protect what is precious to Him. Maybe you're at the dung gate and you've got stuff you've got to confess. Or the fountain gate and you just want more of the Spirit. Or the water gate, you're wanting more of the Word and the Spirit poured out in your life. That sanctification that happens. But I'll tell you what. The horse gate, the east gate, and the inspection gate are just around the corner. So wherever you stand right now in Jesus Christ, I encourage you, invite you, as He invites all of us, to keep going through the gates. Because He's returning soon. Amen? Let's pray together. Holy Father, Your Word is a wondrous thing. We thank You, Lord, for the fantastic, amazing and exciting pictures that we see laid out before us. It's not made up stuff, Father. It can't be. It's just too perfect. And so we praise You for the wisdom of Your Word. And we praise You, Father, for the way You, Holy Spirit, inspired Your Word. Even taking us around the wall of Jerusalem and through these ten gates that we might see that panorama of what You are doing and what You will do. Father, You said You would. You said You'd tell us ahead of time everything You were going to do. Jesus, You said <laughs> you said we are Your friends because You disclosed to us everything You're doing. And so we even see this morning the grand plan once again. Thank You, Lord. And now I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would come and encompass Your people. Lord, wherever we are on the wall, would You encompass us, Spirit of Christ, Remind us, Lord, there are some this morning who I sense need to know, need to be reminded how precious they are to You. So Spirit, come and encompass Your children and draw us along after You. In Jesus' name, Amen.